Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me here. Buck Sexton, excited to get the chance to talk to you about everything going on today and uh, here in this country, around the world, whatever we need to spend some time on, we absolutely will. A quick roadmap to where we are going. Uh, We will discuss a little bit more of the Weinstein allegations later, but I promise not to belabor that news story or to to overdo that news story because I know we've spent a lot of time on it this week. Uh, We also will talk about the latest with Puerto Rico and the political back and forth over it. Uh, bring in some Team Buck Speaks at the end of the show. I'll uh, talk to you a little bit about the market, and maybe we'll get in some NFL talk. Oh, North Korea and ISIS. Planning to give you my sense of those today with a, a buck brief or something similar. And there you have it. That's that's a general overview of some of what we're going to be talking about here. Um, but first, you had a, a big move today by the White House. An executive order. And I, a few of you earlier in the week when I said, all right, I know executive orders don't really usually get people to jump out of their seats with, oh, my gosh, an executive order. But this one matters. This is one that has very important implications for your health care, for your health insurance, for how much money stays in your pocket year in and year out so that you and your family are covered. And here's Donald Trump today as he was signing this executive order. Here's how he described some of it. This is why in a few moments I will sign an executive order taking the first steps to providing millions of Americans with Obamacare relief. I'm also directing Secretary Acosta to consider ways to expand these associations and these health care plans all across state lines. This will create tremendous competition and transformative in so many ways. Change aimed at creating more and lower prices for millions of Americans. But the competition will be staggering. Insurance companies will be fighting to get every single person signed up. And you will be hopefully negotiating, negotiating, negotiating. And you'll get such low prices for such great care. This will allow thousands of small business employers to have the same purchasing power as large employers to get more affordable and generous insurance options for their workers. Sounds great and makes me very happy to hear the administration is going in this direction. Although the devil, as is always the case, the devil is in the details when we're talking about an issue of policy this complex and this complicated, healthcare. I think that's at the very top of the heap of issues where there's a lot to know and a lot to get confused about. 
But I, we will have a healthcare specific expert joining later in the show to talk about whether this will work or not, or how it will work and how it may run into some concerns. Here's my concern without diving deep into the weeds of what this executive order is supposed to do. My concern is that allowing competition across state lines without doing away with the current Obamacare infrastructure means that you are going to have some big shortfalls. Uh, Remember, Obamacare is based on the redistribution of wealth via the health care system. Essentially, they decide who gets subsidies and who doesn't, who gets Medicaid, you know, they expanded Medicaid out. So more people are getting free health insurance and more people are getting subsidized health insurance. And it doesn't matter that they have to do community rating. It doesn't matter how healthy or sick you are. Everybody gets the same kind of coverage based on the Obamacare regulations, the same degree of coverage in the individual markets. So I want to know how does that continue on now? Because you have you're you're going to have to get waivers from the federal requirements that still exist for Obamacare. Remember, they haven't done anything to Obamacare yet. So right now we're being told that there's just a way. And if, if it was this easy, and I don't like to be cynical. I don't somebody like, Buck, come on, be positive, young man. I'm, I come in here, I'm positive. Sometimes. But be honest about this for a moment. Um, and... Here's what I would here's what I would point out. If it were just a function of the president signing something and creating interstate competition for health insurance dollars, what did we go through all this nonsense with the Congress for? What was all that? Oh, repeal, replace. If it, if it were that simple, what was all that hullabaloo about? Hubbub. What was that that supposed to accomplish? So that's one concern without even knowing too much of the details here. Uh, But you do have Rand Paul, for example. You have Rand Paul who is liking this. Today's a big day. President Trump is doing what I believe is the biggest free market reform of health care in a generation. This reform, if it works and goes as planned, will allow millions of people to get insurance across state lines at an inexpensive price. 28 million people were left behind by Obamacare, do not have insurance today. This specifically targets and will help people who don't have insurance or people or for whom insurance is too too expensive. I'm very glad to be part of this, and I really want to commend the president for having the boldness and the uh, leadership and the foresight to get this done. So let's just let's just play this out for a moment here. And, and because Rand Paul likes it, that's obviously giving the president a lot of a lot of cover on this or, or a lot of momentum from people on the right who I think would usually be skeptical of, oh, the president signed something. Now everything is better. Now this is going to work. I think for plenty of us, that would not be our first impulse when the president signs an executive order. But here's what I want to know. Okay, so let's say this let's say this executive order is going as planned. And the state of Montana, uh, the state of Montana is not not the actual state. Some company in the state of Montana is offering a health insurance policy 
that is, you know, $100 a month and just gives you, you know, covers everything that you could ever want to be covered. And and there's no, uh, you know, there's no limitation based on pre-existing conditions or anything else. Just just theoretically, if they were to do that. Anyone from across the country with a pre-existing condition could buy that insurance policy and then start calling upon the policy to pay for their insurance bills. That insurer is going to go bankrupt really fast. I mean, I'm pick, I'm using an extreme example so that we can understand, though, at least how this is supposed to go. But that doesn't work. The economics of it ultimately don't work. If an insurer offers a low-cost plan in one state that's open to people from all across the country, and it's not allowed to take into account pre-existing conditions, that's a charge at which... My understanding is under Obamacare, I mean, th- right? Still no pre-existing conditions. Republicans have still said no pre-existing conditions. Whoever offers that plan is going to be out of, be- out of business really quickly. Alternatively, a health insurer that comes along and offers a very bare bones plan, people might buy that. And let's say it only kicks in after $30,000 of, and th- the biggest scam in the health insurance business, in my opinion, is the uh, reasonable and customary aspect of this all. I'm sure many of you have dealt with this before. When you say, okay, so I'm in network, I spend, uh, you know, or, or let's say you know, for out of network, that's a better example. I'm out of network, but I have coverage and I spend $5,000 out of my own pocket with a lot of money. And I have a $5,000 deductible out of network before things kick in for my insurer. Well, they say you spend 5000 but we only recognize 2000 of your spending. This is just it's just insurance companies moving the goalposts. They'll say, oh, we are protecting the insurer pool. But how does that work now if you can buy things across if you can buy things across state lines, meaning if someone can just offer you a policy, other things have to give. It doesn't work as is if you have the current Obamacare architecture in place. And since the president can't repeal Obamacare with the pen. How this is supposed to play out is. Very much, I think, still a, a mystery. And even when and now I've gotten into some of the mechanics and we'll get into this with a healthcare expert a little later on so I can ask the questions of how this, what this is supposed to look like and mean. But I'll say this to you too. And this is, nobody wants to say this right now. Trump supporters, I don't think particularly want to hear this. I don't want to say it, but here's the truth. People want someone else to pay for their healthcare. We don't think of it that way. But we have all been conditioned now to believe that at some level, healthcare is a right, not a service, not a, not a good that you purchase. Healthcare is owed to you. And what determines how much is owed to you within that idea of healthcare is just politics. You know, we're going to pass laws that say you have to give somebody X amount of coverage, which means X amount of healthcare. We're going to pass laws that say that doctors charge a certain amount for certain procedures and, you know, all of this. It is widely accepted, and I think it is now an article of faith among many Americans, and I think a majority, if we were really being honest about it, that somebody else is going to pay for their health care at some level. We all want the copay, and we want the insurer. We just want that either that check to show up, or we don't even want to have to deal with it. Just the insurer gets the bill. And it eventually... Doesn't work. Eventually, you just come into the there's no such thing as a free lunch. Unless people are going to be held responsible for their health care dollars and their health care decisions, you can't really have a free market. 
unless we're going to allow for uh, differences in young versus old, sick versus healthy, you don't have insurance. You just have redistributive mechanisms within the healthcare system so that you're paying for somebody else's stuff or somebody else is paying for your stuff at some level in some way. This is what the Democrats have done. They have ensnared the country into this. And it's been a longstanding process. And Obamacare is really just the latest chapter in it. This has been going on for a long time. You know, we, we even, don't even get me started, Medicare is incredibly popular. Okay, that's great. Medicare beneficiaries take out twice what they pay in on average over the course of their lifetimes. So that means that the taxpayer is actually subsidizing Medicare and in this case, the taxpayer is future generations. This is why we're $20 trillion in debt, everybody. No free lunch. There's no such thing as a free lunch. I think competition is great. We had Dr. Scott Atlas on to talk about how competition will bring prices down. But it has to actually be competition, and it has to be a market where decisions are either rewarded or punished. If healthcare is a right, no one is going to be able to make much headway on this. If healthcare has incentives and yes, not punishments, but drawbacks, you know, if you decide not to go with coverage and then you're stuck with, yeah, no one's allowed to die in the street. We've already decided that as a society and I, I completely agree with that. But if you have the option to buy healthcare and, or buy health insurance and you don't, you're risking your financial future. If that's not somehow a part of this, then everything we're talking about is just running around in a circle. That's my opinion. I know it's, you know, Rand Paul says it's good. People say it's good. And, you know, the healthcare system has all these problems in it. We'll see. We'll get more into this. If you, if you think I am overstating or understating or, or you have some thoughts to add, especially any of the, the either free marketeers or doctors in the audience, we have a lot of surgeons who listen to this show, I have found out, which I am uh, particularly pleased about. Uh, surgeons, as I have said, are more likely to be conservative than any other kind of doctor. Because conservatives like like to fix stuff, you know. There are a lot of doctors who like to tell you to, you know, go stretch, and, you know, walk it off, rub some rub some dirt on it. Uh, I'm just kidding. No doctors do that, but uh, surgeons like to fix stuff. So I'm not willing to throw a big party yet for how awesome this executive order is that Trump signed. I think it's moving in the right direction, but we got a long, long way to go. And part of it is is an honest conversation with with the American people about where we're spending our healthcare dollars what the major expenditures are, and are we going to live in a country where the government promises to take care of you and promises to provide your health care, or you're making your decisions, but then you have to live with those decisions, and decisions have consequences. I'm not sure which side of that equation we fall on yet, but we'll find out. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Stay with me. Seven years ago, congressional Democrats broke... The American healthcare system by forcing the Obamacare nightmare onto the American people. It has been a nightmare. You look at what's happening with the premiums and the increases of 100% and 120%, and even in one case, Alaska, over 200%. And now every congressional Democrat has blocked the effort to save Americans from Obamacare, along with a very small, frankly, handful of Republicans. Three. And we're going to take care of that also because I believe we have the votes to do block grants at a little bit later time. So Trump is saying that this is mostly a, a step in the right direction, not a total fix. OK, and he's saying that we have to do block grants in the future. And there, 
there are other things that need to happen as well for this to be as effective as we all certainly want it to be. And he's pointing out that Democrats have just put health care on a, a pathway to being impossibly expensive. And therefore, we think, well, if it gets too expensive, we're going to have to change and and make uh, revisions to Obamacare that will bring costs down. But actually, the the progressive left in this country just says, oh, well, if it's becoming too expensive, we'll just the government will just start paying the bill. Single payer. The government will just be the ones writing all the checks for everyone's health care. Now, even Bernie Sanders, I think, a long time ago was like, it's too expensive. So much money. But now this is what you'll hear. Because it is, a, it is politically popular to tell people there is a Santa Claus. That much I do know. Uh, as long as you don't mention that Santa Claus is in any way affiliated with Christmas, right? Uh, for Democrats, they, they want a Santa Claus for health care, but not a Santa Claus that has any Christian undertones, because that upsets them. Uh, all right, a lot of lines. People want to talk health care, which I understand. This, this is one of these days where we're discussing an issue that every single person uh, listening to the show, and certainly myself and Ty and Amy here in the hut with me, uh, you know, we all deal with healthcare stuff. We all have family members who uh, struggle to handle their healthcare costs and have dealt with I- I- health uh, issues and illnesses in the past that you know weren't handled the way we wanted them to be, or were way too expensive. Let's take uh, Todd in North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Todd. Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you for your call. I just want to talk about the group that I I haven't heard anything about that. I think I'm a part of it's I, I there's a group of us that are just planning on dying in place. There's no way that we can pay for the insurance. There's they're going to take you know the penalty from us one way or the other. We're paying all this money. We're not getting anything from it. I mean, basically all I'm doing is trying to keep my wife upright. You know, I mean, we're going back to the seventies people had sure had insurance back then they didn't, you know it, it wasn't a big thing back then you just you just work until you die social security ain't going to be there for me oh i see you're, you're saying yeah you're saying that we're just that, that we're going to work forever i've been saying this to all my friends and my you know it, there's a part of me that feels like i'm being responsible by trying to put a little money away in my 401k but then there's a part of me that's like given monetary policy and the debt in this country and uh long-term obligations and the fiscal irresponsibility of the federal government I'm just going to work forever. And I don't well, know what it'll I mean, be. That's it. And there, there's nothing wrong with that from the way I see it. I mean, it's going to, it's going to, from some of the older folks I've seen, you know, it's done well for them to keep going. I mean, but I'm just, you know, I'm just doing what I can. I mean, and I think there's a lot of us out there and uh, you just don't hear from us. I mean, I don't know why it's, but that's, that's well, I think I think the frustration you're talking about, Todd, is a lot of a lot of uh, why people voted for Trump in the first place. So, look, I think he's got some good stuff going here. And uh, we will take more calls on this after the break. And uh, Todd, thank you for calling in. Sorry, we cut you off there for a second. Uh, we'll be back with more. Stay with me. Today is only the beginning. In the coming months, we plan to take new measures to provide our people with even more relief and more freedom. And we are going to also pressure Congress very strongly to finish the repeal and the replace of Obamacare once and for all. We will have great health care in our country. 
Trump is not saying that this is a panacea or a cure-all. He's, he's just saying that this is a step in the right direction, and it certainly seems like that. Uh, it could take six months to implement, and a lot of it, reading into the executive order over the course of today, a lot of it is about studying a way to find a means to accomplish. It's it's kind of a mission statement on healthcare in some ways, more than it is a specific uh, policy directive. Uh, and and just so you know what the left's con- the, what the left's complaints about this are, I, I turn to no less than CNN. Hashtag resistance. Critics worry that Trump's order, uh, this is a quote, may free uh, may free these association health plans from several key Obamacare regulations and from state oversight, allowing them to sell plans with lower premiums but skimpier benefits. That could draw younger and healthier customers away from Obamacare and send premiums skyrocketing for sicker people left in the exchanges. End quote. The first part of that is not really what they're worried about. They do this thing of, you know, oh, well, do you want the skimpier benefits? It's like, well, that all depends. I should be able to choose a plan with skimpier benefits if I want to. I should be able to get a health care plan that would cover me over 5000 10000 whatever it is. The idea being that I'm going to pay my basic health expenses over the course of a year. But if I get really sick, I'm covered. I don't go bankrupt. A lot of people would want that plan. A lot of young people want that plan. Oh, but then we get into the problem. The central structure of Obamacare as it stands is to eliminate differential treatment within healthcare exchanges and therefore in the healthcare market between those who are sick and have high usage of healthcare and those who are less likely to be or do not have chronic illnesses. It also doesn't deal with the age differences the way that if it were purely based on market mechanisms, it would. So they have to tether the young and the healthy to the sicker and older for these exchanges to stay afloat, which is just another way of saying people that are very unlikely. Now, look, no one really knows, right? You could be super healthy today, go to the doctor tomorrow and find out you got a real problem. I mean, as many of you know, and this happens, but that's I mean, health insurance or, or rather the insurance industry is all about actuarial tables and risk and managing and preparing for and dealing with different risk factors. Right? If if I wanted to sell somebody with a house in the Colorado Rockies, you know, at at 2000 feet elevation, flood insurance, it's probably going to be less expensive than if I want to sell somebody in the Louisiana Bayou flood insurance, right? It's going to be less expensive than that for obvious reasons. We have been led to believe that health insurance should not function that way. Therefore, it's not really insurance. And this is what I I just the the concepts here are important to keep in mind because it's easy to get lost in the details and it's easy to get pulled into the tribalism of, you know, Republican stuff. Good. Democrat stuff. Bad. Democrat stuff is definitely bad, but not all the Republican stuff is necessarily as good as it should be, even if it's better than better than Democrat on health care is not good enough. Little changes here or there, little cosmetic fixes to Obamacare isn't going to cut it. Now, as I was saying, Trump was clear today. This is a first step. There's a lot more that has to happen. There's much more 
that would go into this. And he still believes that uh, doing block grants to the states, which was what was so close recently, and then it lost by one vote, that that would be uh, helpful and that that would make things a bit better. Uh, but ultimately, if we believe that healthcare is a social justice issue and not a market issue, we're just going to be arguing over how much people have to pay for other people's health care. That's, that's what somebody has to address here. That's what Republicans need to speak out on until they're willing to say that if we make insurance really affordable and accessible to everybody, but if you don't get insurance, you can get a huge bill at the end of your treatment and you are financially responsible for that, nothing really changes. Nothing really changes. It's kind of like moral hazard when people talk about Wall Street. If, if Wall Street knows they're going to get bailed out when they go into a period of extreme excess, they know that the taxpayer will not let them fail. If Wall Street knows that, then guess what? They're going to take extreme risks and not care. Right. So if people know that their health care choices don't really matter because the perception is that somebody else should pay when they get really sick. It's it's rational for them to make decisions based upon that. It's rational. Well, someone else is going to pay for this. You know, I'm not going to get the bill. Someone else is going to get the bill. Insurers going to have to pay for it. There's no pre-existing conditions. Okay, I didn't have insurance then. I bought insurance today. Ins- insure me. I just got hit by a bus. Insure me. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's the way the system is going right now. And keep in mind, this is still really just about the individual market. And for those without insurance, the vast majority of us in this country have employer-based insurance, which that needs to be loosened in terms of the restrictions. And, you know, that should be uh, across state lines. And that would really have an impact. And we're still talking about a subset of the market, as far as I can tell. I mean, this is only supposed to affect the individual markets, those in the exchanges, the Obamacare exchanges, and those who are covered by the Medicaid expansion. Uh, so this is what I see going on here. I, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to manage our expectations here. I will note that when people were saying that Trump sold out, he's not building a wall, Chuck and Nancy and everything, I was like, okay, look, it's early. Let's see what happens. I have a feeling he's going to sell out Chuck and Nancy. And I... So far, right now, it looks like I was right. So I'm not ringing the alarm bell on this. I think Trump's doing the right thing. I think it's a good idea. I like that he's refocusing us on health care and at least taking action. He's not just sitting around and, and hoping for this to get better. But it's not perfect. And we need to figure out ways to make it so that this is straightforward. Taxes need to be straightforward, easy, and fair. Health care needs to be straightforward, easy, and fair. Tom in Florida, what are your thoughts? Oh, I appreciate your program, Shields High. Shields High, thank yeah, you, sir. Touch base. I, I, I kind of have a rub. It's a little bit, uh, you know, I don't. I, I pay for everything uh, that I do, and I don't want to pay for other people's stuff. And uh, you know, the idea that I want somebody else to pay for my insurance kind of rubs me the wrong way. But it doesn't rub me the wrong way near as bad as when I see the itemized bill from a night in the hospital where I'm getting charged twenty-seven dollars for an aspirin or. $96 for a pillowcase or $200 for a paper, little paper robe that, you know, ties in the back. Well, then I do want somebody else to pay for that. That's ridiculous. You know, if I can't pay the basic 37 cents for a bare aspirin, like you should have to, and, and $2 for the paper robe, like, like it actually costs, then, then, you know, we can sit down and talk and get honest. But 
as long as the insurance company is able to bill me $30 for an aspirin, then we got trouble. We got to, I do anyway. Right. Well, I mean, we've, we've discussed before on this show, Tom, about how only, only in the insurance or only in the uh, healthcare market do you get products before you know the price of them. There are these really uh, shocking and, and pretty terrifying stories that you can read about people that were being operated on under their plan by a doctor within their plan, by a surgeon within their health insurance plan. But then a different anesthesiologist shows up and they get a bill for $100,000 because it's out of network. I mean, that actually happens to people. And the fact that that's not in any other business other than healthcare, that would be criminal fraud, right? I mean, if I, if I sold you, if I sold you a a brand new pickup truck and then I showed up at your home and I was like, Oh, but the tires that were on that truck, we forgot to tell you, those are like super trooper spaceship, amazing ninja tires. And they cost 500 grand. You'd be like, no, in healthcare, that kind of happens. And I don't see how, Buck. Our representatives are supposed to be working for us. I don't. I just can't understand how they look at me, and I'm supposed to put up with that. I just, I just don't get it. So I yeah. appreciate you taking no, my call. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Thank you so much. I appreciate hearing from you. Thank uh, you. Yeah, Shields High. Okay. You know, it's we see all this stuff happening, and and I don't like to show up and do the look for a lot of people for a long time in the media. You know, that just the, being a part of the outrage machinery is effective you know, to get people going. I could sit here and I could pound the table and yell. I actually have a great yelling voice. I can sound super. I do get super angry sometimes. Although I try not to do it in within earshot or anybody that uh, I work with or, or know. But, you know, I have a great angry man voice. I can yell about things and talk about how Republicans sell us out and, you know, and then just like talk about the Constitution and wander around and want to, you know, play my Fife, isn't that the thing that's the like the flute that goes – is it a fife, I think, right? What's the little flute that people used to play in the colonial era? Am I cra- – anyway, what, you know what I'm saying. With my tri-corner hat and, you know, I love the Constitution and, you know, the Republicans are, are selling us out. They're selling us out. And, yeah, I mean, they're politicians. They're, they're slimy. They, they do bad things. But I'd also like to talk about information here. And, and I view this as a constant – this show is my excuse to be constantly educating and updating myself on everything that I think matters and then sharing and then having you share back to me what you think is important and what you want to know more about. And it is a synthesis in real time on radio. Mark in North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Mark. Hey, Buck. Great topic. These are things we should be talking about. Uh, the last caller kind of took my my plug too is how you cannot get a price list of services from healthcare providers. It's impossible. And you can't talk free market and not allow people to get prices on services. I just don't see how that's even possible. Mark, it's even worse than that. I've had the experience of saying, okay, I want this procedure. I'm on the phone with my insurer. What will this cost so I can know? And they'll say, we won't tell you. They won't tell you what reasonable and customary is because then they're afraid that the providers will game the system and max out their prices to get maximum amount of dollars. So they leave it variable purposefully, which means that you as the consumer don't know what you're paying. We I had the exact say I had a high deductible HSA. My daughter had to get uh, tubes in her ears. So I got three providers and called to get three quotes and none of them would quote it. They said, we won't know till we see your insurance. Yeah. How is that fair, Mark? 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, think about this. This is, you know, do you, it's like I said, this is, do you like this car? Take it home. We'll send you the bill. What's the price? Don't worry about it, you know? And sometimes you take the car yeah. home and the bill is crazy. <laughs> so that's the problem. That's it. Yeah. Great for talking about this. Great topic. Yeah, absolutely, talking. man. Mark, thank you. Shields Eye down North Carolina. Uh, all right, one more before we go into a break here. James, also on WPTI. What's going on, James? Hey, uh, I appreciate everything you've done, you know, just uh, the light and all the darkness and, you know, everything you've done. Anyway, Thank you, sir. I, tr- I try uh, to keep it I try to keep it positive and informative in here. There are, there are other folks who pound the table and scream. I can do that, too. I think yeah. it's simple. Well, the reason I called, you know, I go on Facebook, YouTube, stuff like that, social media, and I see all these people that, you know, they always spout the same nonsense about Trump. It, it just boggles my mind. The the latest thing with, uh, uh, I forget his name off the top of my head now, it's uh, the, the rapper Eminem, that this track he just laid down, apparently. Uh, that just, every, all the same nonsense they've been speaking the entire time about racist and all sorts of stuff. You know, there are plenty of things that I could say about Donald Trump, plenty of criticisms that people could level that I said, there's there's some merit to that. Donald Trump is not not a racist. He was, no. you know, I, he I, I knew the family a little bit growing up here in New York City. Uh, you know, he's just not a racist. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that this is a, a place where the left loves to focus all their attention. You know, should he be yep. tweeting? Should he be telling NBC that he's going to pull their broadcast license? You know, there's some stuff that I'm not I'm not loving. I'm not going to lie. But he's not a racist. It's always the same thing, though. They just, if it ain't one thing, it's another. But it's always usually lies and, and deceit. And, and they all they all spout the same thing that somebody else they heard, you know, from somewhere else. Yeah, I know. Look, for a lot of people, James, you just got to understand that politics is a is more of a statement about someone's lifestyle choice and view of themselves than it is about actual politics, right? About laws and about governance and about the relationship between citizen and the state. For a lot of folks, they they are, I'm, I'm a progressive leftist who loves Nancy Pelosi, et cetera, et cetera, because it means I'm a good, smart, kind, considerate person. It has nothing to do with anything else. Shield Todd James, we've got to roll into a break here, man, but thank you so much for calling in. By the way, a fife is indeed, as I see here on Google, a small kind of shrill flute, especially played in military bands alongside the drum. Even when I don't know, I know, Ty. Amy, that's right. High five for me. All right, we'll be right back. We're going to talk about that uh, press conference that General Kelly, the chief of staff, gave earlier today. He hit on a lot of really important things, and it'll also, I think, open up an opportunity for us to just talk a bit about North Korea and maybe even the Islamic State, Um, and then perhaps a little bit of a Weinstein discussion, but not much. I'm limiting the Weinstein talk today in response to many of your comments and emails about how, okay, you know, we we sort of, we've heard the stories as of now, and there's not a whole lot more to add to it until something changes, um, in terms of the macro, at least, in terms of what's going on at the 30,000-foot level. But Lisa, listening on the iHeart app in California, wants to chat with us all. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Buck. Go Team Buck. Go Team Buck. Lisa, you've you've got your own, like, uh, you've got your own, you know, uh, chant or call sign or whatever on, on the oh show. Oh my we God! I, I I am live streaming you on Twitter every day, all day long. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, <laughs> okay, so you signed off with the fife and drum, but I don't know if you know this. What the fife and drum were used for? 
was to call out military commands because it was so noisy on the battlefield that military commanders couldn't get their commands to their men. Yeah, I think whenever people hear that particular kind of drum in the fife, that's what they think of as colonial era. You know, they can practically see George Washington emerging from the mist. And yeah, I get it. Yep. So that's what it's all about, getting your men into position. Yeah. Okay. All right, Lisa. Thank you. Anything else? I just love it. Keep talking. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) We all send you a big Freedom Hunt hug, Lisa. Thank you very much for calling in. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Fife, I am, uh, I mean, it'd be fun to find some colonial era music maybe to play on the show. And, and also I, I think we're, what do you, I think it's probably time. Maybe we'll update some of our bump ins and bump outs for the show in terms of the music that we use. Um, uh, I, I think it's, it's been a while now. It'll be, gosh, we've been on the air on this show for a year and a few months, which seems like a uh, time is. Is flying by. 844-900-BUCK. If you would like to chat about anything at all, you know that is how to reach us. Oh, one thing I wanted to say, and uh, this is good to say now because it's um, quick. So there's going to be a new, what is she, the new Homeland something or Homeland Security, what is she? Director? Okay, yeah. And her name is Kirsten Nielsen. And I just want to say, I think as a society, it's time that we come together and figure out one way that we all spell Kirsten. Because there's already Kirsten, there's, there's Kristen and Kirsten, which is already really tough. But once you add in all the weird spellings of Kirsten, and now you got a J? I mean, this is just crazy, people. You know? this. Let's be civilized. One way to spell Kirsten. We'll be right back. All right, team. Great to have you back with me in the Freedom Hunt. I really enjoyed, rarely would I say this, I really enjoyed a uh, press conference today. Um, that was held by General Kelly. Um, he is a very compelling and, in his own way, a charismatic fellow. He just just commands respect. Look, he's a, a general, incredibly well respected within military circles, uh, and and outside of military circles, just across the board. Uh, and he took the podium today. Sarah Huckabee Sanders stepped aside and. He just, he was the most effective spokesperson for this administration on these issues. Maybe you could argue yet. And now that's not to take anything away from, I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders is actually doing a very good job in her role. Way better than Sean Spicer was. Just, just speaking the truth as I, as I see it. Uh, I think Heather Noward is phenomenal at the State Department in her role there, too. But she's less visible unless unless you're really into like international relations and State Department policy. Uh, But she's doing a very, very good job. So you have two of the most effective people in this entire administration, at least on the communication side, are women, I should point out. Um, And but today we had uh, so that's Noward and Sanders. But today. We saw General Kelly or Chief of Staff, Chief of Staff Kelly discussing a whole bunch of issues. And he he was able to take the media to task on some things. Uh, first of all, this this notion and it really came up this week because of the story that Trump was like, you know, I want 10,000 more nuclear missiles or whatever it was. Right. Like Trump is just just the biggest bozo, biggest imbecile ever. And it just is not credible. It's not credible. 
This is like someone saying that, you know, Trump was worried that when he was on a yacht, he was going to fall off the edge of the earth or something. I mean, come on. There are limits here, folks. Right. We all know this. There are limits to what we could even begin to believe. And Trump did not say that he wanted 10 times as many nuclear missiles. <laughs> OK, there's just no I, I don't care if you haven't read a newspaper in the last 20 years. You know enough to know that we don't need 10x the nukes that we have. Just there's just no way. But the press was oh, they were all double down on this. And yeah, it's true. And they love to talk about the the moron. As an aside here, everyone knew that uh, Rahm Emanuel had an incredible streak of uh, vulgar speech and was nasty and abusive to stat. But you didn't really hear the stories, did you? People in the White House somehow find the ability now, the members of the press, they find the means of reporting on somebody saying something about the president behind closed doors that was uh, derogatory. But you didn't hear that about Rahm Emanuel, who, if you look back at some of the quotes that are attributed to that guy, I'm sure there was plenty of stuff that was said. Okay. But now back uh, back to Kelly and what he's been trying, what he's been having to deal with. A White House that has a lot of leaks. I think a lot of the leakers are gone now. And a White House that is uh, besieged by the press. And this, like I said, is a particularly interesting week for that because of the story that Trump wanted 10 times as many nuclear missiles. I mean, come on, right? So Kelly vented some frustration about this today. And I think it was worth everybody hearing. And I think it's worth you hearing now. No, I'm not frustrated. This is really, really hard work. I I don't mean any criticism to Mr. Trump's predecessors, but there was an awful lot of things that were, in my view, kicked down the road um, that have come home the roost pretty much right now that have to be dealt with. Uh, This is hard, hard work, John. And uh, my only frustration, with all due respect to everyone in the room, is when I come to work in the morning and read about things I allegedly said or things that Mr. Trump allegedly said or uh, people who were going to be fired or whatever or think and it's just not true. So he's saying that those reports, this is General Kelly saying those reports are not true and what I think is often overlooked in all these discussions is that it is harmful. It is uh, time wasting. It is a waste of resources for the pinnacle of the federal government to be ensnared in having to play defense about gossip mongering, basically, about about gossip columnists pretending or people that are supposed to be White House correspondents who are just acting like a bunch of gossipy high school kids, uh, that that's not helpful and that's not shining a light uh, up on democracy. It's not speaking truth to power. It's just acting like punks. And he doesn't like it. And I think it was really important for the American people to hear that today. And in case they weren't clear on it, this is in front of the West Wing reporters, right? This is in front of all the White House correspondents. Here is what Kelly said about their misrepresentations. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a reasonable guy. But when I read in the morning, I read the, uh, well, I won't tell you what I read, but and watch TV in the morning, it's just, it is astounding to me how much, is misreported. I will will give you the benefit of the doubt that you are operating off of contacts, leaks, whatever you call them. Um, But I I would just offer to you the advice I'd say, uh, 
you know, maybe develop some better sources. Um, some person that works way down inside an office or, or uh, well, just develop some better sources. He's really saying that the media is guilty of fake news. <laughs> and this is he won't use that term because that term is uh, inflammatory to the press. Right. They get very upset, very angry about it. But he's saying that they are guilty of fake news. That's what this is, that you're running with crap sources and telling crap stories. Please stop doing that. It is not helpful. Um, So there was that. But then let's get into. Oh, and there's one more thing about the criticisms of Kelly himself. They're saying, oh, well, he was brought in to right the ship and he's supposed to make everything run more smoothly and all this. Kelly's like, look, I'm not here to be President Trump's wrangler. I'm not here to be the one who's trying to, you know, grab onto the leash or something. You know, it's funny. I, I, I read in the paper, you, well, you, you all know, you write it, that, uh, you know, I was, I, I've been uh, a failure at controlling the president or a failure at controlling his tweeting and all that. I, again, I was not sent in or I was not brought to this job to control anything but the flow of information to our president so that he can make the best decisions. He takes information in from every avenue he can he can receive it uh, i restrict no one by the way from going in to see him but when we go in to see him now rather than onesies and twosies we go in uh and help him collectively understand uh what uh what he needs to understand to make these vital decisions so this is a guy who is tremendously uh well respected and has impeccable integrity and uh, served his country for decades, and he's telling the press, knock it off, all right? Cut it out. So for any of us who are wondering, you know, is this all just a show when Trump says that there's fake news, the media's being irresponsible, which I know none of you think that because you listen to this show, and so, of course, we all know that. But here's somebody with gravitas. And look, he's, he's not out there saying everything Trump does is great. You know, he's not some super Trumper who pretends that the president is some kind of demigod, right? He's just saying, look, stop with the smear campaigns, the lies, the gossiping and all that. It doesn't help. It's not. And you do a disservice, not just to your profession as journalists, but to the American people. I mean, I thought it was really powerful today. And you looked around that room and for the first time, they weren't dealing with a Sean Spicer. You know, they weren't dealing even with Sarah Sanders. No disrespect to her, but they were dealing with a formidable veteran who knows D.C. inside and out, isn't impressed by anybody, isn't scared by anybody and scared of anybody and uh it was it was very effective uh, the administration should have general kelly speak more often not just to the press but to the american people uh, in this way and before um I, I switch gears and get into what he said about north korea and i'll use that as an opportunity to talk to you about what i see happening there i don't know how many of you have uh have heard this before um, but this, there's a speech that General Kelly, at the time he was a Marine Lieutenant General, uh, John Kelly, giving a speech back in 2010. Uh, his son, General Kelly's son, died in combat in Iraq. So he's not just somebody who served his country himself. He knows that loss. He is a gold star parent. He lost a son in Iraq in combat. But he was giving a eulogy a few days after his own son had died in combat. He was giving a eulogy 
to two Marines. And this is a an excerpt from that speech. This is back in 2010. But I think, one, just something that we should all know and we think about. We I know we just had four U.S. Uh, Special Forces lost in Niger. We have Marines and, and airmen and, and, uh, and soldiers and naval personnel in combat and combat theaters all over the world. Uh, but also, this is the individual that has been brought in to the Trump administration because of his uh, gravitas and the respect that he has. And I wanted to read this speech to you for a moment, and then we'll go into a break. So this was back in 2010, eulogizing two Marines who have been lost in combat. This is from General Kelly's speech. Two years ago, when I was the commander of all U.S. and Iraqi forces, uh, in fact, the 22nd of April, 2008, Two Marine Infantry Battalions, 1-9, the Walking Dead, and the 2-8, were switching out in Ramadi. One battalion in the closing days of their deployment going home very soon, the other starting its seven-month combat tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Harder, 22- and 20-year-olds respectively, one from each battalion, were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate of an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks housing 50 Marines. The same broken-down ramshackle building was also home to 100 Rocky police. Also, my men and our allies in the fight against the terrorists in Ramadi, a city until recently the most dangerous city on Earth and owned by Al-Qaeda. Yale was a dirt-poor, mixed-race kid from Virginia with a wife and daughter, and a mother and sister who lived with him and he supported as well. He did this on a yearly salary of less than $23,000. Harder, on the other hand, was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. They were from two completely different worlds. Had they not joined the Marines, they would never have met each other or understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously depending on one's race, education level, economic status, and where you might have been born. But they were Marines, combat Marines, forged in the same crucible of Marine training, and because of this bond, they were brothers as close or closer than if they were born of the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant squad leader, I am sure, went something like this. Okay, you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear? I'm also sure that Yale and Harder then rolled their eyes and said in unison something like, Yes, Sergeant, with just enough attitude that made the point without saying the words. No kidding, sweetheart. We know what we're doing. They then relieved two other Marines on watch and took up their post at the entry control point of Joint Security Station Nasser in the Sophia section of Ramadi al-Anbar, Iraq. A few minutes later, a large blue truck turned down the alleyway, perhaps 60 to 70 yards in length, and sped its way through the serpentine of concrete jersey walls. The truck stopped just short of where the two were posted and detonated, killing them both. Twenty-four brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed. A mosque a hundred yards away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest two hundred yards away, knocking most of a house down before it stopped. Our explosive experts reckon the blast was made of two thousand pounds of explosives. Two died, and because these two young infantrymen didn't have it in their DNA to run from danger, they saved 150 of their Iraqi and American brothers in arms. When I read the situation report about the incident a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander for details about something that struck me as different. 
Marines dying or being seriously wounded is commonplace in combat. We expect Marines, regardless of rank or MOS, to stand their ground and do their duty and even die in the process if that is what the mission takes. But this just seemed different. The regimental commander had returned from the site and he agreed, but reported that there were no American witnesses to the event, just Iraqi police. I figured if there was any chance of finding out what actually happened and then to decorate the two Marines to acknowledge their bravery, I'd have to do it as a combat award that requires two eyewitnesses. And we figured the bureaucrats back in Washington would never buy Iraqi statements. If it had any chance at all, it had to come under the signature of a general officer. I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke individually to half a dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told the same story. The blue truck turned down into the alley and immediately sped up as it made its way through the serpentine. They all said, we knew immediately what was going on as those two Marines began firing. The Iraqi police then related that some of them also fired and then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. All survived. Many were injured, some seriously. One of the Iraqis elaborated and with tears welling up said, They'd run like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned the very, that very instant, was that Marines are not normal. Choking past the emotion, he said, Sir, in the name of God, no sane man would have stood there and did what they did. No sane man. They saved us all. What we didn't know at the time and only learned a couple of days later, and I wrote a summary and submitted both Yale and Harder for posthumous Navy crosses, was that one of our security cameras damaged initially in the blast recorded some of the suicide attack. It happened exactly as the Iraqis had described it. It took exactly six seconds from when the truck entered the alley until it detonated. You can watch the last six seconds of their young lives. Putting myself in their heads, I suppose it took about a second for the two Marines to separately come to the same conclusion about what was going on once the truck driver came into their view at the far end of the alley. Exactly no time to talk it over or call the sergeant to ask what they should do, only time enough to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant told them to do a few minutes before. Let no unauthorized vehicle or personnel pass. Two Marines had about five seconds left to live. It took maybe another two seconds for them to present their weapons, take aim, and open up. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here, the recording shows a number of Iraqi police, some of whom have been fired their AKs, now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. They had three seconds to live. The recording, uh, or for about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines' weapons firing nonstop, the truck's windshield exploding into shards of glass as their rounds took it apart and tore into the body of the SOB who's trying to get past them to kill their brothers. The recording shows the truck careening to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. The truck explodes. The camera goes blank. The two men go to their God. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their families, their country, their flag, or about their lives or their deaths, but more than enough time for the two very brave young men to do their duty into eternity. That is the kind of people who are on watch all over the world tonight. End quote. That is General Kelly, everybody, talking about two of our Marines. We'll be right back. Buck, back with you here in the Freedom Hut team. A quick correction. Uh, General Kelly's son died in combat in uh, Sangin in Helmand province in Afghanistan. I think I said Iraq before. Uh, but those Marines he was talking about, that was in uh, Ramadi in Anbar province in, in Iraq. Uh, but yeah, Kelly's son is, was a Marine, and uh, he was killed in action in Helmand province, Afghanistan. Uh, but Kelly is a is a well uh, a patriot and a 
huge asset to this government, and I think we saw a lot of that on display today. Um, also, I assume he's a he must be a Boston guy, right? He sounds like a Boston guy. Yeah, I mean that's that's a very unique accent that he has. So I'm assuming, love my Boston peeps, but I'm assuming he's a he's a. It came out a few times. I think he said a few like you know ka, something like something like that. Yeah, there was some of that. Um, I don't know. There were a couple of words I said. Oh, he must be from Boston. Uh, but here's what he had to say about North Korea, which I think we'll talk a little North Korean ISIS coming on the flip side of this break here. Uh, play the clip, please. All right, let's talk more about the uh, details of the health care plan here uh, and or the executive order on health care. We've got uh, Ovik Roy on the line. He is a president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He's a Forbes, uh, Forbes opinion editor, author of Transcending Obamacare and How Medicaid Fails the Poor. Ovik, great to have you back. Hey, Buck. Good to be with you. What's up? Uh, not much, man. I mean, so a lot of fanfare today about the executive order. What will this do? What might it do? What doesn't it do? Buck, if Obamacare is a rhinoceros, the Trump executive order are like a bunch of raindrops. Basically has almost no effect. It's modest relief. It's better than nothing. But Ovik really is dropping bombs, everybody. I'm sorry, Ovik. Go ahead. <laughs> it's on them. It's it's very marginal. And look, I don't I, I don't fault Trump for that. I think Trump is doing the president's doing everything he can within the law. But the problem is the law gives the president actually fairly limited powers to change Obamacare because the Affordable Care Act, as we all remember, two thousand pages, it was incredibly prescriptive about how insurance companies could do what they do and what kinds of plans people could buy. And there's not a lot you can change about that with executive orders because you have to have an act of Congress to change that. And as we all know all too well, Buck, we don't have an act of Congress to change Obamacare right now. So, wait, uh, what is this supposed to do? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering here because everyone's very excited today. I saw there are lot, lots of coverage, lots of talking. People are saying this is going to allow for uh, inter- actual interstate commerce, as like it says in the Constitution. Uh, and that means you're going to be able to buy a health care plan across state lines. Is, can this do that? Um, not really. It can, again, it can make modest, it can make, it can reduce some of the barriers to interstate competition for insurance. But ultimately, uh, under this, uh, this executive order, it'll still be up to states because, again, it's acts of Congress here. There's this, this law called the McCarran-Ferguson Act that would have to be repealed by Congress in order to have truly interstate competition for insurance but this law this bill this executive order excuse me does allow for a few less hurt fewer hurdles if you want to have multi-state insurance plans so you know modest there's another thing in the bill in the executive order i keep saying bill the executive order that uh that would make it easier for small businesses to band together to become effectively one big large pool to to buy health insurance in bulk um yes that could help a little bit on the margins Small businesses can already do that through organizations called professional employee organizations, or PEOs. There's already the ability for small businesses to pool their resources. In fact, my think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Equal Opportunity, that's what we do. We pool with a bunch of other small companies to, to, to buy our health insurance for our employees. So that's not a big deal. And then the last thing was, okay, there's this, there's this piece of the bill that's uh, the executive order that says, okay, um, Let's allow for these short-term plans that last less than a year that people that can buy with get kind of get outside of the Obamacare regulation. Okay, that's good, 
and that's a, you know that's an improvement from what was what was true beforehand. But all Trump did there was he restored the regulations that were in place prior to 2016, because the Obama administration basically everyone was uh, bailing out of the Obamacare exchanges. Nobody was signing up. People were buying these alternative plans that weren't regulated by Obamacare. The Obama administration tried to shut down that escape valve to prevent people from using it. So the Trump administration is saying, okay, we're going to restore that. Great. I'm glad they did it. Look, the world is a better place with this executive order. But is it like this earth-shattering thing that's going to gut Obamacare? No. Okay. that's what I, I had a feeling that this was pretty much the case, uh, Ovik, but... I, I think that there's such a, a hunger right now for positive yeah. action from the administration and from the government in general on health care that maybe this was getting a little bit more. Yeah, look, we could say this is good for optics, gets enthusiasm going, it's moving in the right direction, and that's all, that's all to the good. Uh, but, you know, Trump also said, and we played the audio earlier today, that he still thinks that we'll get to block grants for the states. That, that plan from a few weeks ago that failed to get through the Senate, they may revisit that. Do you think it is just a case of making the case to the American people so that there's more pressure on some senators to actually get this thing through? Or, uh, you know, what's going to happen here? Is this just going to be health care deja vu all over again? Well, it's very close, right? They're very close in terms of having the 50 votes they need to pass that uh, that bill or something, uh, some version of it. I think the two things to watch, Buck, are number one. Uh, what happens with John McCain? As you know, his health is, has deteriorated. He's got a, a pretty serious uh, form of brain cancer. Uh, you know, we all wish him the best of health, but uh, but who knows exactly how long he will he will remain in the Senate just because of health considerations. He, hopefully, he lasts a long a long time, but we just don't know. Uh, and the other factor is Robert Menendez, who has this uh, trial for corruption and perjury and bribery, which you probably covered. On your show, oh yes, he's convicted. If he's convicted and forced to resign from the Senate, while Chris Christie is still governor of New Jersey, well, guess who gets to appoint his replacement? At least in the short term, Chris Christie. So that's two votes right there that could shift based on a pretty near-term uh, events. So if that happens, then the vote count could change potentially. Speaking of Ovik Roy, who's the president of the Foundation for Research on equal opportunity. Uh, Ovi, just so everyone knows, why is it that right now, if I'm in the individual market living here in New York State, and I said, you know what, I love this plan that's offered out in uh, out in Texas. I want to buy that Texas plan. What stops me from doing that? Basically, the way it works right now is you have to buy an insurance plan that's legal in your state, in the state that you live in. So every state has an insurance commissioner, uh, and, and it basically a government bureaucracy that, that says this plan is allowed to be sold in this state. And if you can't, you know, if you don't have that license in that state, you can't sell it, which isn't true of a lot, most goods and services. Most goods and services, like, you, you know, you to make an iPhone in California, you could sell it all over the country because that's considered a barrier to interstate commerce. But in the case of insurance, there's an old law that was upheld by the Supreme Court that basically allows health insurance uh, to be sold only at the state level, and you really can't do multi-state insurance. The one exception to that is states themselves can enter into agreements with other states in what are called interstate compacts. So if Texas and Oklahoma want to create a single market for health insurance between those two states, they have the option to do that. In fact, I believe Georgia and Alabama did that a few years back. They said, okay, we're going to allow for insurers to sell plans across that state line. 
but the insurers didn't do it because at the end of the day, it's a, it, it sounds like an easy fix, and it's really not. Fuck. The real thing we need to do is not buy health insurance across state lines. We need to buy health care across state lines. You need to be able to you know, have a doctor be able to uh, read your x-rays from a different state and give you, you know, a diagnosis based on that. We need to, you to be able to go to a doctor in another state or a knee surgeon in another state where the prices are cheaper than where they are where you are. And you can't do that because of all sorts of regulations and problems. So the problem of interstate... So wait, 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 hold on a second. If, if I live in New York and I want to go get surgery in, in Illinois, that's an issue? It can be an issue, absolutely, because uh, the, the way that the system works now, there's, if you ha- want to get surgery in Illinois and that surgeon isn't licensed to practice in New York, it's actually very hard for your New York primary care physician to refer you uh, okay. to a doctor who's not licensed in New York, right? Because medical licensure laws are also done at the state level. Right. Uh, and so that's an example of where, it's, again, it's not just about health insurance. It's about health care. You really want to change the way healthcare works in America. You got to buy health care across state lines, not just health insurance. Health insurance is just a mode of payment. You know what matters is the actual health care and competition there. Ovik, are you speaking to some people about fixing this whole thing? We're looking to you, buddy. What's going on? <laughs> um, listen, I mean, uh, yeah, conversations conversations are ongoing. I, mean, obviously, I think right now everyone's taking a break, trying to work on tax reform. That's the top priority. But yes, behind the scenes, uh, people are trying to figure out. Uh, what can be, you know, what, what, where we can move forward with Congress. And, yeah, I don't think anybody has given up. At least I, I don't talk to anybody who's given up. Maybe it's a self-selected group that talks to me, but um, I certainly haven't given up. It's too important of an issue, as you know, and um, we got to make progress. But you know what? Look, I, I think one thing that a lot of us in the conservative movement need to understand is that whatever we manage, whatever manages to get 50 votes in Senate, if we get that far, it's not going to be a perfect bill. Health care bills never are. We have to be willing to accept first downs and not just simply pine for the 80-yard Hail Mary. We've got to move the ball down the field. And I feel like a lot of times there are people like Rand Paul, for example, who says, no, I'm not going to accept this bill because it preserves too much of Obamacare. I'm not going to accept that bill because it preserves too much of Obamacare. Look, we've got to do the best we can. Whatever it is, if it repeals parts of Obamacare, at least that's a start. And I feel too, too many of us have just said, if it's not perfect, it, it's worthless. And I think that's that's preventing us from, from at least in part, that's preventing us from getting where we need to go. All right, everybody, go check out Ovik's work at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Mr. Roy, great to have you. Hey, Buck, thanks a lot. Team, uh, we're going to run a break in a second. First, let's take a call, though, from Eric in Rochester, who's been on hold for quite a while. What's up, Eric? Yeah, um, you were asking for suggestions from, from your listeners, and I, thought, I came up with one right away. It's October. So maybe a deep dive into the October Revolution would be appropriate. Oh, that's a great idea. Okay, I like it. That's a, Let me a uh, late in the month. Maybe you might have to scramble a little bit. But it's I mean, there's so many. There's there's a lot more to it than a lot of folks get taught about in school. Oh, people Especially don't learn anything. They don't learn anything about the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks and Lenin yeah. and Trotsky and the back yeah. and the infighting and the yeah. backstabbing and you know. And no, people people think that like this you know the the Soviet Revolution. Uh, the, the, or the October October Revolution and what, what led the Soviet Union was like this populist uprising. Nope, they were actually a tiny minority that never had popular support, and they just, you know, machine gunned everybody in their yeah. way, basically. So, 
Uh, yeah, that would be interesting, uh, Eric. People don't realize that the original revolution was a, was actually a democratic revolution, the one that over, actually overthrew the Tsar initially. Yeah, people don't realize that. No, no, no one gets this. No one gets this history in school because all the professors are are no. you know secret <laughs> socialists. All right, man. Thank you, Eric. That's a great idea. Let me see if yeah. I can get to it. Although I, I have to, I'm noticing that there's the opinions on history deep dives tend to run in two directions: love or uh, not so love. So. I'm hoping to find a way to maybe add them into what we do here in the hut, but make it an, an external. So it might be a podcast that is separate from the show or just the occasional segment here or there. I'm I'm not sure. It's I don't want anyone to be like, oh, I'm not listening because we're about to go into history. But I know a lot of you do listen overwhelmingly because you like the history. So we'll see. I got to I'm trying to just trying to keep the whole team happy, everybody. You know, I'm like. I'm like uh, the guy who's driving the car on the road trip, and there's all these different options of where we're going to stop for fast food. You know, is is there one place? You know, can we all agree that flame broiled at Burger King is probably the best option? No, some people are going to want uh, you know Popeye. They're going to want Taco Bell. Or it's it's tough here in the hub. We got a lot of food options. We got a lot of a lot of things we can eat together. So I'm always trying to be. Selective with it. All right. With that, uh, coming back here to talk a little national security. And then um, what am I? Oh, yeah. Puerto Rico update next hour and some other stuff. Stay with me. So we had General Kelly. um, Do we have it? Yeah, we have General Kelly uh, talking about North Korea. And I meant to I forgot that we had OVIC scheduled for that part of the show. Sometimes that happens. It throws me off here because we're doing a live show. And I uh, the, the team dutifully. Uh, informs me of things like our guest schedule and then i just am all you know i'm all uh fired up with my black rifle coffee and uh you know i just forget that uh, i've got a guest i gotta get to but i want to return to this issue of north korea and what uh general kelly had to say about it go play the full clip the american people should be concerned about a um a state that has developed a pretty good ICBM capability and is developing a pretty good nuclear reentry vehicle. Um, I would believe, I think I speak for the, the administration, that that state simply cannot have the ability to reach the homeland and for that matter, well, the homeland. Right now, there's great concern about a, a lot of Americans that live in Guam. Um, right now, we think the threat is manageable, but over time, um, it... Uh, if it grows beyond where it is today, uh, well, let's let's hope diplomacy works. That's the General Kelly way of saying that we will reach a point at some stage in the future based on North Korean belligerence, intentions, and capabilities. We will reach a point at which there will have to be action taken that is not diplomatic. That's a very subdued way of saying that the current course of U.S. and really international community, North Korea relations, if it does not change in some major capacity, involves a military action. Not tomorrow, not next month, but that is where we are heading. And I think another point that he made, and we, we played this audio for you earlier in the show, and I'll just mention it now instead of making you listen to it a second time, but that a lot of problems were delayed. That's one of the defining characteristics of the Obama administration's approach to foreign policy was that with Iran, get a deal that just it doesn't do anything really other than just delay the problems. 
with North Korea, it was just keep things as they are and delay the problems. With Syria, it was wait and wait and hope that something gives and changes on its own. And then eventually, because things got so bad in about the last two years of the Obama administration, they started doing what they should have been doing from the beginning. Right? But delay was central to their approach. Um, and the administration that's uh, additions to the foreign policy canon of strategic patience, which became really a, a, a joke, leading from behind, which was definitely a joke, and then also don't do stupid stuff, that, you know, that's the Obama doctrine, which is not really any doctrine at all. And we saw that in place. And with North Korea, we didn't hear much about it under the years of Obama because they figured that it wasn't imminent and dealing with it would have political consequences. So better to leave it for the next guy. Well, Trump is not planning on leaving it for the next guy. But this is really about as high stakes as it gets in the realm of national security and, and diplomacy. We're talking about a nuclear state that is uh, still very misunderstood um, or it is poorly understood. And we're trying to gauge its intentions and, and what it really wants. And nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. And in fact, a lot of the uh, most egregious strategic errors that have been made in, well, period, I was going to, you could really say in history, but when it comes to matters of, of war and peace, had to do with not understanding the real intentions and goals of the other side. And I don't think anybody really has a handle on Kim Jong-un and what his next moves are going to be. I don't think anybody does. But Trump is making it quite clear, and along with General Kelly and General Mattis, that the status quo, the current trajectory is unacceptable. So we'll continue to see. People have been wondering if there's a, a missile launch that could come any day now. Another test, perhaps an even more aggressive test that is specifically intended by North Korea as a slap in the face of the United States. That may happen. One more thing here. There is a uh, switching to Cuba for a moment in the realm of national security. There's audio, which I won't play for you because it's kind of just you can imagine what an audio weapon sounds like. It's a horrible noise. It's very annoying. Uh, it's like sort of just a high pitched noise. Um, but Fox is reporting on this, others as well, that they think that these uh, diplomats who have had all these terrible symptoms and there's, they may have been exposed to this audio weapon in Cuba, uh, they have a recording now they think may be the audio weapon, which this is a mystery that we have to get to the bottom to and we'll continue to follow it. Stay with me. So, so it's a duty of the United States to put their boots on the ground here in Puerto Rico. It's not that we are begging is that we, it's what we deserve. Uh, we have been in every war. We have been fighting very hard, uh, giving our blood. Uh, so now we deserve for them to be here. It's, it's, it's the, uh, at the end of the day, two main things. First, he's talking to his electoral base. He's not talking about law or about history. He, and he's, he's showing up that he, he's just racist. He's, 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 let's call it by name. Governor, that that's a that is that's a, a pretty bold assertion there to call the president of the United States racist. That was the former governor of Puerto Rico, who, as you heard, is straight up calling President Trump a racist. Believes that that is somehow constructive or or fair. And I think what you're seeing from a lot of uh, politicians and talking heads 
on Puerto Rico is much more about using this as a means of attacking Trump than anything having to do with actually helping those on the island. Uh, I was just talking to you yesterday in some detail about the wildfires in California that have destroyed over 100,000 acres and thousands of homes and killed dozens and perhaps even as many as 100 or 200 people when all this is done. We have many people who are missing. That's happening right in California. Natural disasters are a terrible and terrifying thing, but to politicize them in this way has, in the, in the manner of Puerto Rico, you're not really seeing it with the California wildfires, although people will talk about climate change with them, as happened yesterday on the show. Apologies for that. But with Puerto Rico, the assertion is that Trump, first of all, uh, is uh, not doing enough because he's racist. And, and that's just an unfortunate, unfair thing for them to say. I mean, Trump is a guy from New York City, which I should note, Puerto Ricans in New York City are one of the most uh, widely represented constituencies in the city. If you grow up in New York, you have Puerto Rican friends, you've been to the Puerto Rican Day Parade, and you've had a lot of connectivity to Puerto Ricans for a very long time. There are, in fact, more Puerto Ricans where I live here in New York City than there are in the capital city of Puerto Rico, San Juan. So this narrative that Trump is racist and doesn't care is just nonsense. And the storyline that's out there that says that Trump was threatening to pull out aid workers, all he said is they can't stay there forever. He's trying to, in a Trumpian way, albeit, he's trying to encourage the people of Puerto Rico who are in positions of authority. Puerto Rico has its own civil servants and police and aid workers to get going here and make sure they're doing everything possible, really at the political level, doing everything possible to rebuild and get back to business as usual. Look, I understand this is uh, terrible for the island. Uh, tourism is a huge part of the economy. That's going to be that's has dropped off and will continue to have dropped off for for months. Uh, the infrastructure of the island of Puerto Rico is not the same. And, and I was aware of this when I was in Puerto Rico, what, I don't remember now, six months ago. The infra infrastructure of the island is not the same as on the mainland. It's just not. And I think it was a, a very interesting um, view of the political situation in Puerto Rico when I was there because, one, you had an all-island work stoppage. They almost prevented me from getting to the airport. I literally beat the highway shut down. They had student groups shutting down the highway to the airport on an island that is very dependent on tourism for its economy. Uh, beat them by about an hour. Uh, and there was this sentiment that the uh, $70 billion debt that Puerto Rico has is everyone else's fault but those who have been making decisions for Puerto Rico. And they just want to default. Uh, or they, they want the debt to be wiped away. But the only way to do that would be through some kind of default unless the federal government just writes them a check. But that's also not going to happen. And there are clearly structural economic problems that existed in Puerto Rico long before this natural disaster. Half of Puerto Rico's three million inhabitants, 50 percent, according to Health and Human Services, are on Medicaid. 
Med- not Medicare. We're not talking about people who are elderly who are now uh, getting the entitlement that they've been paying for their whole lives. Medi- Medicaid is health care welfare. So just by that one statistic, half the island of Puerto Rico is on welfare. Uh, you can imagine that there are other programs that they would need access to as well beyond just free health care in order to uh, sustain their basic needs. So Puerto Rico has had economic problems long before the Trump administration came along. And I think there's just a lot of uh, efforts underway to do two things here, including people like the former governor of Puerto Rico, who we started out this segment with that soundbite of, where on the one hand, this is useful as a means of attacking Trump. Even if it's completely untrue, they don't care. They get to run with the Trump is a racist narrative, which is one of the left's favorite things. That is where much of the resistance, the hashtag resistance, believes it derives its moral authority from the notion of Trump as racist, that there are these comparisons being drawn between how good Trump's response was for Houston and how bad it was for Puerto Rico and how Houston is 40 percent minority and and almost uh, almost majority minority and Hispanic. Uh, that that doesn't seem to factor into the analysis from the Democrats and from the the partisan left wing media on this. But there's also this blame shifting that you see happening, whether it's the mayor of San Juan with her you know nasty woman T-shirts and all of the uh, political grandstanding she's been doing, whereby they want to blame somebody else, not just for the problems of the current what they call la situación, which is what they're referring to the Uh, disaster of Hurricane Maria as, like the aftermath of it, but also to just point to the mainland and all of the politicians on Puerto Rico, except for the current governor, who's been uh, praising the federal government response and and has been friendly towards Trump and and what his efforts have been. But you have a whole political class in Puerto Rico that knows that the, uh, the easy political winner for them here is just to say, see, it's all the mainland's fault. They don't care. They don't even know that we're citizens. We are owed this. We are owed more than what we're getting. I mean, it, the, the rhetoric coming out of Puerto Rico is not, uh, is not good from the politicians there uh, because you would think that the focus would be much more on rolling up their sleeves and engaging in the process with FEMA and with others of getting the power back on, doing everything in their power to tackle problems. Instead, you're, you're seeing, I'm sorry, you're just seeing a lot of political preening from some of these uh, local politicians in Puerto Rico. And yeah, I know people are suffering. It's terrible. There are particularly rural communities that have been cut off. Uh, they, there are whole mountainsides that have come down. There's a tremendous amount of debris and road uh, obstruction and there's not power. And I understand all of that, right? I, I'm, I'm reading about it. I see it all. But those things did not happen because Trump or the Republicans or the U.S. mainland don't care about Puerto Rico. And those things are not still the case because Trump and the Republican Party and mainland U.S. citizens don't care about Puerto Rico. It is just an unfortunate circumstance. And the federal government is doing what it can. But as I always say, this is also at some level a reminder of the government's just not that good at stuff. Uh, We like to look at the response and think that the federal government can just come in and it's amazing. And, you know, other than our military capabilities 
and our taxation capabilities, the federal government really is not that good at a whole lot of stuff. The federal government is good at war fighting because of our military, and it's good at taxation because it likes to take money from us because that's what keeps it going. Beyond that, the federal government's always going to be slow. It's always going to be disappointing. And so the lesson, if anything, of Puerto Rico is local communities and at the state level and below, they want to take their destinies into their own hands as much as possible. Because whether you're Puerto Rico or Houston or Florida or California or New York after Sandy, wherever it may be, if you rely on the feds, you're probably going to be disappointed. I was just sick. I was shocked. I was appalled. Um, it was something that was just intolerable in every way. And, you know, like so many people who have come forward and spoken out, this was a different side of a person who uh, I and many others had known uh, in the past. Would you have called him a friend? Yes, I probably would have. Um, And and so would so many others. You know, people in democratic politics for a couple of decades appreciated his help and support. And I think these stories coming to light now and people who never spoke out before having the courage to speak out um, just clearly demonstrates uh, that this behavior that uh, he engaged in cannot be tolerated. That is from Hillary Clinton on Harvey Weinstein, who tolerated very similar behavior from her husband while he was (laughs) governor of Arkansas and then president of the United States. So it is pretty galling. It's pretty amazing to hear the former first lady and former secretary of state and twice would be President Hillary Clinton talking about how this is just beyond the pale and unacceptable. We got Emily Zanotti joining us now. She's a writer for The Daily Wire. And uh, it's Zanotti time, everybody. Emily, thanks for calling in. Thanks for having me. I I just wanted your first reaction to Hillary now. Just, oh, oh, I can't imagine something so terrible as Harvey Weinstein. It's like, I bet she heard stuff. I bet she knew. And I bet she didn't care. There's no way that these people haven't heard anything about Harvey Weinstein. He's been at this for decades. Women across Hollywood knew that this was going on. The stories were out there, but she waited nearly a week to even issue sort of a half-hearted statement and now saying that, oh, she has no idea. She had no idea. He was just a dear friend who cut her a lot of checks. She was willing to forgive a lot of sins. And by the way, you know, you got Anthony Bourdain, who is a very anti-Trump left-wing guy, used to be a chef. And so I kind of liked that whole part of his his deal. But now he's like a political pundit who also sometimes eats food. Uh, But he came out and and said pretty in pretty stark terms that Hillary's basically Hillary, no fool. She knew about this. That's what that's what he was saying. And people on Twitter were freaking out at him. Because that's how tribal the mindset has become, that you're not allowed to call Hillary out on this issue, even if you're a progressive who thinks that the show, you know, Girls is groundbreaking and what it has done for (laughs) feminism. You're not allowed to call Hillary Clinton out. No. And he actually said, you know, I respected her. I voted for her. I thought she was one of the most qualified people to run for president. But 
I can't believe that someone who holds themselves out to be so smart was so dumb about this, but it turns out yeah, she really was. Either she was willfully ignorant or she's completely lying. I, I wonder, by the way, what's going to happen with money uh, that's that's been given to all the Democrats here. I know this mm-hmm. is something I know this is something that, uh, you know, you have been digging into. But but Hillary won't specify what the charity is that she's going to give the money to that was given to her by Weinstein. Which is ridiculous because it took us about 45 minutes to find out the exact amount. But we actually, can we says- can we play? We actually have Hillary talking about this <laughs> issue, Emily, and then I want you to weigh in on it. Would you give the money back? Well, there's no one to give it back to. What other people are saying, what my former colleagues are saying is they're going to donate it to charity. And of course I will do that. I give 10% of my income to charity every year. This will be part of that. Uh, but won't say what. I, I saw some people joking. Well, she's clearly going to give it to the Clinton Foundation. I don't <laughs> think that's a joke. I think that's what she'll do. No, it's, it's, she, gives, she says she gives 10% of her income every year to charity and that she's going to continue to give 10% of her income to charity. But she says that this year, that 10% is going to magically come from the money that Harvey Weinstein gave her. So even though she's cutting the exact same check and the accountant will get the exact same money, she says that it's all Weinstein money, so she can't be held liable at all for anything. Tell me about this piece up on DailyWire.com where you are a writer about attorney Lisa Bloom and her lashing out at the left after they condemn her defense of Harvey Weinstein. What happened here? Well, Lisa Bloom says that everyone is just attacking her and causing her so much pain because they were critical of her for stepping onto Weinstein's defense team almost immediately. Of course, as soon as the New York Times Weinstein story came out on last Thursday, Lisa Bloom was at his defense. And she's, of course, a feminist attorney. Her mom is Gloria Allred. She's supposedly a crusader for women who have been domestically abused, who have been sexually harassed. And yet here she is basically standing up for a guy who has a track record of years of sexual harassment and abuse. She eventually got off the Harvey Weinstein train after her own mother criticized her for taking him as a client. But now she says she's so hurt because she was just seeking justice and the left just doesn't understand that she was just seeking justice i always remember being at a meeting of the council of foreign relations which i know now it's like book was at cfr bilderberg's illuminati <laughs> but you know the, the actual cfr not the one that the conspiracy theorists imagine <laughs> in their head there's just a lot of memo reading and tea drinking at cfr which is really what i excelled at in my government career memo memo writing and tea drinking uh but i remember being there and a lawyer a long-standing a uh, very partner like name partner at a big firm went off on this tangent once at a, where there was a big gathering of of uh you know powerful CFR folks and he was like there was a time when you when the clients that you chose that was a decision right that you know right. you, you don't have to represent the worst person ever or and you certainly don't have to do absolutely anything to get that person off but are you saying that uh, that legal ethics have just changed, essentially? I think that that one group that gets off way too easy here with the Weinstein thing are the lawyers that are threatening to sue women that clearly want, yeah. you know, if this is the 10th woman that you're threatening to sue for slander that says that Weinstein raped her, you're you're bailing out a rapist as the lawyer. I mean, that's what you're doing. Yeah, and it's, a, it's an entire team of people. So it's the people at the Weinstein company who made the decisions to agree to the sexual harassment settlements. It's 
the PR people who went to the media to basically smear these women, um, it, every opportunity they get, there would be a, a negative story draft on women who even so much as resisted Harvey Weinstein. He ended people's careers. So there certainly were Hollywood producers and directors who took phone calls from him. There's this whole team of people who are conspiring to make this man the kind of disgusting oath that he really is. So it's, it's, it's bizarre that people think, oh, it's just one person or it's just Weinstein. It's a whole culture of corruption. Tell me about the we're, – we're, by the way, this is where I say hard turn, everybody. So this is a hard turn. But tell me about the sexy first lady costume, which is the weirdest <laughs> Halloween idea ever. This is your piece up on the Daily Wire. <laughs> this is my piece. Like, speaking of sexual harassment, right? Um, so Yandy.com, which is kind of famous for making these really ridiculous Halloween costumes for women, like a sexy carrot, sexy pizza. They're always super weird. This year, they've come out with a sexy Melania Trump costume. So if for some reason you want to dress as a first lady, but also be half naked, you can get this costume for $70, and it's just like a knee-length skirt and a bra top and then some white gloves, which you have to pay a little bit extra for. But uh, there's also a sexy Donald Trump, so if, if you want to go with a pair, you can go with a well, pair. Well, I mean, any any Donald Trump costume is obviously sexy donald trump is oh a, yeah it's the he, hair he's very pop yeah i was gonna say the guy's hair is very popular with the ladies right. <laughs> you're like uh sometimes depends on which ladies you talk to donald trump is popular with um right exactly that's uh one more thing pumpkin spice as a flavor should it be year-round or is it overrated i will not drink pumpkin spice i can't stand the flavor so i am down with it I would probably regulate it out of the market if I could. And iced coffee should or should not be more expensive than normal coffee? Um, should not. Just ice cubes, right? Exactly. Thank you. I'm not alone here. <laughs> All right, everybody. Zanotti time. Go to dailywire.com to read her latest. Emily Zanotti, writer for The Daily Wire. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Uh, we'll be back in just a few talking a bit about the markets, the debt, and Team Buck Speaks. Stay with me. The country, we took it over at owed 20 trillion. As you know, the last eight years, they borrowed more than it did in the whole history of our country. So they borrowed more than 10 trillion dollars, right? And yet we picked up 5.2 trillion just in the stock market, possibly picked up the whole thing in terms of the first nine months in terms of value. So you could say in one sense, we're really uh, increasing values and maybe in a sense, we're reducing debt. But we're very honored by it. And we're very, very happy with what's happening on Wall Street. I'm not going to lie to you now. That was from uh, Trump sitting down with our friend Sean Hannity last night. This this Trump saying that stock market value means that whatever the debt is, it's like it cancels it out. That that's not how that's not how it works. That's not how that goes. I, I just want to. I'm I'm keeping it 100 in here. I am keeping it real. That is not because that that stock value, as we have seen, not only could disappear very rapidly, but it is historically speaking, an inevitability that there will be a correction and that there will be a downturn in the market. I mean, unless you think that history, we're gonna. Break from history in the market is just going to keep going up and up and up. I know there's also the possibility of a sideways market, which people in Wall Street uh, and, and in finance will grumble about. Pretty amazing that Wall Street 
is is still the generic term used for the financial industry when most of the financial industry isn't on Wall Street and all this stuff is done electronically now anyway. And a lot of the most important financial institutions uh, or at least important major funds, for example, hedge funds are not even in New York City anymore. A lot of them are in Connecticut. And, and Wall Street is named for a street back in the old uh, days when New York was actually uh, under the control of the Dutch. It was New Amsterdam. And, you know, the, they built a wall to be able to fortify in case there was a Native American raid. Right. I mean, that's it's kind of an amazing little history. What do you think about it? Wall Street? Yeah. Not has nothing to do really with the financial industry anymore, but it's the shorthand that we use. Anyway, uh, the reality here is that the market right now is good, that a lot of the Trump, it's very good. uh, And a lot of the rhetoric that I I believe Trump has brought in to his administration has been helping. But the debt is still there. And we should understand that we are already – in something of a red zone for piling up obligations that future generations are going to have to pay off. And this much you can be certain of. In terms of where the stock market stands, uh, if there's a massive correction, you know, if that were to happen, if there's a stock market crash, 20, 30%, whatever it may be, uh, the media will turn all of this Trump talk into a one long campaign ad for the midterms. So I know I know that when it, when economics or when the markets, when the economy, that's a better way to put it, when the economy is doing well, the president gets more credit for it than he should. And when the economy is doing badly, the cre- uh, president gets more blame than he should. In this instance, there's not enough that is being done right now, I think, to prepare for the inevitable, uh, well, change that will come because we can't just have asset prices continuously inflated and going up and up and up. And what you've really done because of the way that they have been manipulating monetary policy is you have made those who have assets lots of money on paper just because they have assets, whether it's a home or stocks. And those who are laborers, those who work Uh, they are in an increasingly difficult position because it's harder for them to buy a home and they don't get the lift that uh, so many others do from owning assets. So this is just something I'm not going to spend much time on. We're going to get into Team Buck Speaks here in just a second, which will definitely be more fun. Uh, But I worry that the administration right now isn't making the case at all for what needs to change with regard to government spending. And look, this isn't sexy stuff to talk about it. I get that. But I'm old enough to remember the Tea Party. I'm old enough to remember when there were huge rallies of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in this country that were concerned about the dead. And that was trillions of dollars ago. And we are doing nothing right now to change that. And to say that the stock market offsets the debt that that is not a uh, that is not sound economic thinking. It's just not, you know, uh, look, I I keep it real here. I tell you what I think, for example, that it is not helpful when the president says that we should look at maybe taking away NBC's broadcast license because he's not going to do it. I know he's just trolling them, but it gives so much fodder to the anti-Trump left. And I I think it's just a, a mistake from PR perspective. 
Right now, the times are good. The markets are strong. The economy seems like it can only go in one direction. That's when you want to start making noise about being responsible and making changes that will prepare us for an imminent future where for at least a little while, things are going to feel a little rough. It's coming. I mean, there, everyone I talk to, and I speak to some very smart people in the world of markets and stocks. I don't know much about it, but there are others who do. And it's coming for sure. There will be a time. All right, team, we'll be right back. I'm dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. You know, team, some days you just need a Braveheart quote. And for me, today was one of those days. Still think it's my favorite all in, my favorite movie of all time. And it's one of the rare occasions where I have agreed with the Academy Awards when they gave out a Best Picture winner. And people say it had an effect on history as well. There are some who have claimed that the uh, Braveheart movie was responsible for a surge in Scottish uh, nationalist and separatist sentiment. Speaking of nationalism and separatism, I think we should probably return to uh, the Catalonia uh, independence movement in Spain, which has really gotten much less attention in the press than one would think it would, uh, given that it could be the breakup of the, it could be signal the beginning of the breakup of the uh, fourth largest economy in the EU, and so it also could result in a domino effect of other places within Europe that decide, you know what, we kind of want to do our own thing. Isn't it fascinating that that part of the world, Europe, which is more than any other region associated with internationalism and globalism and the multilateralist uh, UN Davos ethic, whatever that is, Uh, that there are people in Europe that are sick of having no sovereignty and they want to feel like they have control over some destiny, uh, over their own destinies, their own lives. And they also want to have some control over the culture around them and the people that they have to call neighbors and countrymen. They don't just want it to be left to faraway bureaucrats. Uh, Some interesting lessons we could draw for here. But I, I want to finish out today with what is one of my very favorite segments, which is Team Buck Speaks. Uh, I get so many amazing messages from you, and especially because we have a, a, a large uh, contingent of Team Buck that listens to the show either on demand on the iHeart app or listens via podcast later on. And uh, apologies, I know we had a podcast delay getting it up today. That was a technical issue. But because so many of you listen and not necessarily in real time, I always like you to know that you can not just be a part of the show by listening and uh, by being a part of all the things that we do that way, but also you can send me your specific comments, questions, additions, revisions, uh, sonnets about making America great again, screenplays about General Mattis becoming a Ronin, a wandering samurai in a post-apocalyptic future where he takes on all comers, including the mutant overlord Schmorb. I don't know. I made that up on the fly, but you know what I'm saying? Whatever creative ideas you have, whatever you've got, 
uh, please do send it my way. All right, first up here in Team Buck Speaks, we have David, who sent a photo of his beard slash phenomenal handlebar mustache with the caption, Hey, Buck, do you think Miss Molly would let you grow one? Shields high, brother. Well, David, I'll have you know that Miss Molly is a big fan of facial hair and always wants me to have uh, a scruffier look going. But because I do a fair amount of TV during the week, TV executives, especially for whatever reason, for a guy my age, they tend to be very opposed to facial hair, especially scruffy facial hair. And so I, I go clean shaven, but... I will have you know that uh, Miss Molly would almost certainly very much appear, uh, uh, very much applaud your handlebar mustache. And if I could grow one and not have it be professionally problematic, I would certainly do it. We got Joe writing in with the following Buck, big news for Team Hensel. After a 10 month screening process, I was asked to join the San Francisco Police Department. So on October 23rd, I'll be starting the academy at the tender age of 51 well joe i just can't tell you enough how uh, proud we are uh, of you and 51 huh starting the academy sfpd that's great that's great congratulations and all the best and check in in the future and let us know how it's going shields high christy writes in uh, i've been listening since the saturday shows and i'm so glad that more people are getting to hear you also glad to see you on Fox News again, as I really miss Red Eye and Tales of the Shaggin' Wagon. Uh, also, Miss Molly needs to watch Top Gun before she's, she harasses you about not seeing the Harry Potter movies. Take care and Shields High. Well, thank you very much, Christy. And uh, I, I, I miss Red Eye, too. I thought that was a great show on Fox. It was a lot of fun. I think Greg Gutfeld did a phenomenal job. Um, th- th- it was... I, I always felt like they could have taking that show and just with a with a little bit of additional distribution uh, it could have become a, a real phenomenon on the right i mean it already was beating even though it was on at three o'clock in the morning because of dvring it was beating other networks actual news broadcasts during the normal news cycle so uh, red eye was was a great show and i miss it too i i definitely miss doing that show all right we have tom here with uh, buck i had 20 years of back, hip, and leg pain, leg pain from an army parachute training mishap. Military medicine did nothing. Civilian medicine wanted desperately to do surgery. In 1998, I received a book by Dr. John Sarno called The Mind-Body Connection. I read it. I self-diagnosed with a syndrome called tension myositis. Within 30 days, I was pain-free. Will be 20 years pain-free soon. Nothing short of a miracle. Get any of Sarno's books. Little to risk, lots to gain. Shields high, my friend. Well, Tom, that sounds great. Always looking for new things to read and learn about. And I will check out this uh, Dr. Sarno's book. Um, Let's now get to uh, Richard. He writes in, Buck, thank you so much for what you said regarding police and the very hard job they have. My father is a retired colonel who was in charge of all detectives uh, for Baltimore City PD who had nearly 30 years of service. If you've ever read David Simon's book, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, you've read about my pop. Uh, He gave David permission to do the ride-alongs. My father-in-law also has nearly 30 years on the St. Paul, Minneapolis PD, mostly in narcotics. His partner was executed by the Black Panthers in the 70s. They both served with honor and made many sacrifices. Your words today are so needed. Shields high. Well, Richard, thank you so much for writing in. And 
Uh, very interesting stories. Uh, your, your family law enforcement background is fascinating. Thank you for sharing it with us. Okay, Rick writes in, in response to your Las Vegas uh, portion of the show earlier this week, I listened to a short recording of the gunfire from Las Vegas. I was in the Army and fired weapon systems that fired both 5.56 and 7.62. To me, that weapon being fired was belt-fed and a 7.62. 5.56 has a higher-pitched crack, whereas 7.62 is more of a lower thud. There are a lot of things that the police have said that just make absolutely no sense. Well, Rick, I'm trying to ask all the questions here because there are certainly unanswered ones. That much we know without any question. Okay, Sandy writes in, one of the great joys of life is listening to your program, particularly the historical references. They provide perspective and context. May the Lord bless you, keep you, and continue to light your way. Well, thank you very much, Sandy. That's a very kind note, and it is very much appreciated. Jeremy writes in with the following, Buck, I hear you talk about the Kurdish people needing their own state and that the administration is wrong to not want this. How is this situation different from the Palestinian-Israeli issue Yes, the Kurdish support the U.S., but can you maybe expand on the comparison in a show? Um, well, I, I, it's a hard, I think it's a too rough a comparison of situations for it to be useful to talk about Kurdish separatism within Iraq versus uh, the Israeli-Palestinian issue because uh, when you're talking about the, the Kurds, there's no, uh, there's no dispute that there is a Kurdish majority region of the country where everyone is speaking Kurdish, where the Kurds already assert control. Um, and it's just a function of, of negotiating over some of the places of overlap, like Kirkuk and the oil fields. Whereas, and this is a very shorthand answer to a much bigger discussion and problem in the case of Israelis and Palestinians, the biggest issue that we face in that conflict is that the Palestinians now have multiple generations of being uh, largely indoctrinated and, and educated to believe that they will eventually get it all back and that they will destroy the Jewish state. So if it was just a question of, OK, we have the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and let's negotiate, then I think we actually could solve the uh, Israeli-Palestinian issue. But Hamas doesn't want just a little more. They don't want to negotiate. They want to win. And winning means the destruction of Israel. So I think it's a very different situation than what the Kurds are dealing with right now in northern Iraq. But as I was saying to you, philosophically, we all need to understand that there's not a clear rules of the road established for, you know, who gets to have their own state and who has to just suck it up and deal with it, that they're stuck in somebody else's state. You know, if uh, if a portion of, you know, let's say. Uh, you know, a portion of Oregon, you know, if Portland wanted to create its own little country, there's some pretty radical politics there. Should they be allowed to? Well, there are tiny countries. I mean, Vatican City is not really a country, but there are some tiny countries and principalities in Europe. Why can't Portland become its own little nation with its own laws? Well, because we'd say they can't. Right. I mean, it's it's not a not an obvious and clear cut issue. I will say that. So. Uh, man, I always Team Buck Speaks is, is fun because it's uh, I get to see so many of your thoughts and commentary about about the show and it uh, I get going with it and I realize that you know, I could do a whole hour on this stuff. But uh, maybe we'll, we'll get into more of this tomorrow. Uh, I've got a lot of bookmarked and uh, uh, well already picked out 
messages from all of you on Facebook. If you want to send me a thought, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. By the way, really appreciate all the doctors who have been reaching out, uh, mostly to tell me that they're happy to give me advice on how to deal with like chronic foot pain. So thank you for that, uh, as well as all the rest of you who just deal with constant pain and are expressing your sympathy. Very kind of you all. So uh, with all that, uh, Miss Molly is back tomorrow. I'm very excited about that. It's been kind of a boring week. I've been doing so much cooking here in the, uh, well, not in the Freedom Hut, but in the whatever I call my home. I have to come up with a, the buck layer. That sounds kind of weird. I got to come up with something better. The buck cave. There we go. I like the buck cave. Please do download the podcast. We'll make sure to get that one up on time this time. And until tomorrow, we get into a Freestyle Friday, my friends. Shields high.